Tell us about how you ended up in your role today. Okay, it's because I really met my husband. Um, I, am... <laughs> I sleep with the boss. <laughs> I do sleep with the boss. Hello and welcome to the Pending Approval Podcast, a talk show highlighting the ups, the downs and those complete head fuck moments of the business world. We have a skew on advertising. I'm your host for the show, Glenda Wynyard, and with me again today is producer G. Hello. We actually have two other people with us today as well. How wild is that? I know. It's a world of firsts for us. We've never had two guests at the same time. We'll have to see. And do you know who else is back? Who? Pat. I'm going to break out into a song. Pat is back. Pat is back. Pat is back. (laughs) Who sings it better? (laughs) Who sings it better, Pat? I'm doing at least Eminem. I'm a bit more current than she is. I love this company. Do you? Yeah, the company we're about to talk about. I'm actually wearing my checks from this retailer. Joining us in the studio, according to lockdown restrictions, of course, are Australian retailer Fella Hamilton's leadership team, Sharon and David Hamilton. Welcome, guys, to Pinning Approval. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Hey, it's great to have you here. What have you been up to, guys? Well, there's never a dull moment in COVID, in manufacturing and retail and in any parts, any facets of the business. It's constant go, 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 thinking, thinking. Um, so we're never sitting still. I think that's great. Look, we recently started working together as a recommendation from another guest of ours, uh, business consultant Kylie Murphy. I think she's so smart. I really do. She's such a down-to-earth character and, and you just don't expect her to come out with some of the wisdom that she does. No, she's great. We've um, we've engaged her on our advisory board probably about six months ago. I heard her at an ANZ, it was like a workshop on for um, retailers and I was very, very impressed. She just seemed very level-headed and very practical, and I just liked a lot of the advice she was giving. So we uh, we chatted, and we seemed to see things in a very similar light. Um, and we got her to do some analysis work on our business, which she did a fantastic job. And then uh, we've now engaged her on our advisory board. So. Yes, she's a very smart lady. Yeah, she is. She's great. She's a good character too. Now, Sharon and David, we always start the show with a bit of a background on our guests. So, Sharon, why don't you go first? Tell us about how you ended up in your role today. Okay, it's because I really met my husband. Um, I (laughs) I sleep with the boss. (laughs) I do sleep with the boss. I'm a pharmacist by profession. I studied and pra- I studied and then worked in a f- in a hospital setting for a few years and went on to retail for about eight years. And I actually loved the management of business side of things. Um, so I was really interested in stock levels and what margins were and just the everyday running of a business. And I, I was very dedicated. Um, that's the way I've been brought up. And uh, David said, why are you putting all this energy running a pharmacy when I need help in the in the business? Because uh, his father had recently passed then. We were married for only a few months and his dad passed. So he kept trying to convince me, but it was really after I was held up at knife point uh, during the day, that really shook me up. We had three young kids at that stage 
And he said, you don't need it. I'm really asking you, I don't want, I want you to come in. And so that's how it all started, that I came and joined the family business and first in a part-time capacity and now it's more than full-time. That is ridiculous. That's the best story I've heard about how someone's gotten into a job <laughs> on this podcast ever. <laughs> Hands down, you win. So you were, you were held up at knife yeah. point. Oh, yeah. my gosh. No wonder you got out of it. But I'll tell you what happened, which was very, very sad. It was a drug addict. It was in, um, well, you may not know South Yarra, but South Yarra is a lovely strip of shops, Turak Road, South Yarra. Uh, but they are a lot of, um, there are some flats where some rough people are. And he went from shop to shop. I pressed the panic button. The police eventually came. I gave him all the drugs and all the money, um, and he died in police custody that night because oh. he gobbled, he gobbled up all the drugs. So, I mean, we got to see a lot of drug addicts, like quite often people were trying to forge scripts and I'd have to ring the doctor to confirm. So you see a whole, you know, a whole spectrum of people, but also you see the disadvantage and unfortunate ones. So, Oh, that's sad. Sharon, that this is the best story I've ever heard on this podcast. I, I can't get over it. I cannot get over it. That's crazy. But i just say one quick story is I started my pharmacy after hospital. I went into a retail where we did a methadone program and we had to give methadone every day to people who were struggling coming off heroin. And I left my shift and the lady took over my shift and she was held up with a jackhammer. So no. that, that was in Gilbert. A jackhammer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like her, she was held up. Someone came with a big... Um, Big weapon. No, no, this is this is true. Yeah, I don't think it was a jackhammer. All right, oh, well, whatever. It was one <laughs> big weapon. So the incidences, um, unfortunately, in pharmacy, uh, especially when you do when you are um, helping on a methadone program, that there is a large chance of being held up. I had absolutely no idea. That's crazy. That's crazy. Gosh, David, I wished I'd put you first. Can you actually? <laughs> Can you, your bio, what's, what's gotta, the background there, David? Phil Sharon's boots. Jeez. My gosh. I, I don't know. I'm not as exciting as Sharon, I don't think. I mean, basically, I grew up sitting around the dinner table listening to my parents speak business. So I suppose it's in my blood. And to have a mother like I did, it's obviously rubbed off. Uh, so I think I've got a bit of her creative uh, talents. Uh, not that I'm a, 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 a real fantastic uh, designer. I don't claim to be a fashion designer, but I've got a good eye for fashion. I've, I, as I say, I've, I've learned it over many years. And uh, basically, I, I just always knew that I wanted to go into uh, into business. And then there was this uh, business that my parents were running. And I just thought, well, that's the business I'll be going into. So I, I sort of didn't really do a lot of study. I went in at, at a young age and I start, started at the, on the ground floor. I worked in production and I, I sort of worked my way up and I've worked through every part of the business, whether it be sales, production, you know, admin, and uh, eventually uh, we are where we are today. I mean, that's 40 years ago. My father did pass away, as Sharon mentioned. Uh, he was working with my mother in the business. He passed away uh, just a month after we got married. And at that point, I had to step up. And uh, You stopped studying? I did stop studying. I was doing a, a marketing degree uh, part-time working and, and studying and I had to step up and I've just learned everything along the way and it's been 
very enjoyable. I've been lucky to have my mother as a mentor, and uh, now I'm lucky to uh, have Sharon helping me. She's a very energetic lady, as you've observed. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> she's also very smart, so we make a very good team. We're a bit yin and yang, and uh, it's a fantastic team. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, my sister was also working in the business uh, with her husband, so it was a real family business. About seven years ago, they decided to retire. She's older than me. So for seven years now, Sharon and I have been running it on our own. My mother, of course, doesn't work anymore. She's quite elderly. She's living at home above us, actually, in an apartment, and uh, we talk to her every day. She's very switched on and... uh, very interested in the business, but uh, she, of course, is in her 90s, doesn't work anymore. Well, she needs a break in her 90s. You, know, you can't expect <laughs> her to go to the office every day, David. <laughs> but I love that you're such a family business. I think it's fabulous, and we're going to talk a lot more about family in a, in a moment. David and Sharon, I would be really interested to know the history of Fella Hamilton too. I know you mentioned that it was your your family's business originally, but how did it come to be, just so we can get our, our listeners to get the full picture? Okay, well, my mother was a housewife, and at that stage when she started the business, uh, I don't think my father was very successful in whatever he was doing, and so she decided to get off her backside and do something. So one day she had this idea to make terry toweling turbans, and she saw somebody in a gym, I think she was in the sauna, wearing the turban, and she asked if she could lend it. The lady had bought it in London. She took that turban to her local dressmaker. She obviously sourced the fabric, and it grew into something uh, amazing in terms of it it grew from terry-toweling turbans to terry-toweling beach cover-ups and then dresses, tracksuits. She was really the first person to do terry-toweling clothing in Australia. It was a huge hit and that really put her on the map and then we became wholesalers. We were selling, she was was selling to David Jones and Meyer and Grace Brothers in Sydney and boutiques all around Australia. She had agents selling her range all around Australia. And um, that's really how the business grew from uh, from that idea of doing a terry toweling turban. Originally, she sold them just to the local pharmacies, and then it just grew from there. Do you know what? Whenever someone talks about a turban, I just can't help but think of Jeannie Little and how she used to wear turbans all the time on the Don Lane show. Now, can you tell me, did she ever wear a Fella Hamilton turban? I am not aware that she wore a fellow Hamilton turban, so I can't say that that was uh, our claim to fame for, from her point of view. You can't confirm nor deny, though. That's that's the great part about this. That's correct. And we tried to Google um, that question <laughs> and we couldn't find... We tried to see when turbans were first made here in Australia and there wasn't a lot of information on who made actually Phil, um, Glenda you'd be interested Fella Hamilton did come up on the front page I can't remember what what it was listing when we said Australian made turbans so there just doesn't seem to be a lot of information there I think it's brilliant I, I just love that she did that because I was brought up on the Gold Coast and you know back in the in the day I won't say what year that'll date me too much but it was always you were in the turp, you know, you had your terry toweling clothing and, and there was the jumpsuits and the shorts and things like that. So I do I do know what you're referring to. I really do. Mm-hmm. I'm sure my grandmother probably had a fella Hamilton turban. And you've got to remember that in 1969, it wasn't easy for a woman to start a business. Uh, she no. had to go to the bank 
to get a loan. And my father said to her, you're never going to get a loan. They're not going to lend a woman money. And she got it. I don't know how she did it, but she did it. And uh, Well, she was uh, quite a feminist and she belonged to the Young Liberals, wasn't no, it? No, no, the Women's Electoral Liberal Lobby. Lobby. Yeah. yeah. I love it. She yeah. sounds like well, such yeah, a Yeah, I love it. We should get her on the podcast next. <laughs> now, as our listeners can hear, you you two really are a team. Like, you know, it's it's fascinating. It's great to watch. And like I said, Fella Hamilton's a family business. It's like the media precinct. We're, we've got a family business. I get to go to work every day with my daughter. And um, come to podcasts. And come to podcasts time. every day with my daughter. <laughs> So that's always exciting. But for those out there that are in a similar position, do you actually find it difficult living and working together? Because I don't have to live with G. That That's the good thing for me. You don't look anything alike. <laughs> I know we don't. <laughs> I know, I know. Take after my dad. We get on well. What can we say? Uh, uh, we're very lucky that we get on so well. Sharon's a very patient lady. I must say that. She puts up with me. Uh, she's got a fantastic temperament. So I think that goes a long way towards a, a successful relationship. But uh, what And David's very impatient. So, <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes I have to bite my tongue because he might just walk out in the middle of a meeting because he can't hear or he's frustrated or whatever it is. But generally we do agree. We both um, got a very similar common sense and practical outlook of things and we generally agree on most things. So there's not many things we would argue about. But that was our relationship right from, you know, meeting and it was almost like great big, uh, best friends from very young. So we sort of haven't had a problem working together. We're just used to it. I mean, it's been how many years now? For probably nearly 30 years that we've been working together. Do you differentiate between work and home? No. What, no, what's really hard is it's really a blended, I mean, running a business is not 24-7, but, you know, 14-7, you know, 14 hours a day because you'll wake up in the morning and think about, oh, what do we have to do or remember, remind me this. So it does work also to an advantage that there's always um, someone there bouncing ideas or reminders. And often the day is very, very busy here that you haven't had chance to go through everything that had to be spoken about that unfortunately or fortunately it does become blended and it's part of sometimes, you know, the dining room table talk. But the kids are used to that and and they sometimes find it interesting, you know, a topic that might interest them, whether it's landlords or vaccination policies. So it sort of does not just stop and start when and, you get to work. And the other thing is that you said the other day, we certainly don't run out of things to talk about. We've always got a lot of things. Sometimes they're exciting, sometimes they're not, but there's lots of topics of conversation yeah. that we're dealing with all the time and it's an exciting uh, yeah. process. And because three of our kids are no longer living at home, they're living with their partners, you know, they want to know how's business, how's work. So, of course, you know, you talk about work and so, no, it, I think it'd be very hard. I'd find, I mean, maybe when only one partner's in the business, but I think it'd be really hard to just the minute you leave work to just not think about it. 
I agree. I, I find, you know, I, I can't not think about work. It's the first thing that I think about when I wake up in the morning and probably the last thing that I think about before I go to bed, which some people would say is sad. But you know what? We're all workaholics here and I'm proud of it. So I'm going to keep that going. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no, I think I think it's normal, right? And, you know, we we often, when if we go to dinner or we'll chat with each other on the weekends, pretty much talking every single day, I'll always talk about at least something to do with work. There's always one thing. We try. Georgia found it very difficult in the beginning, didn't you, to differentiate between work and work mother and home mother. You know what I mean? Like it's very different, uh, very different. You just got to blend dynamic. it now. There's no work and home. It's just everything at once. Yeah. I mean, the only thing is on a, say, a Sunday, David, I mean, I'm always checking. I'm a bit of an email holic or whatever. I try to make sure the etiquette is to try to answer things within a certain time frame and I'll check you know numerous times on a Saturday on a Sunday and I'll go oh David did you did you see that email came in and he says I'm not looking at it today so that's the only thing that um but if there was anything more important I'd say no I think you better look at it (laughs) I I won't be offended David I promise you Well, so, I told you we were yin yang. I, I mean, I'm happy to turn off, but Chan really never turns I don't, off. I don't turn off. And I, I can't try to pretend I'm g- going to do that. You know, some people will go, oh, well, you need to do, you know, relax. But, you know, we do, we exercise and we have, you know, we walk with lots of friends and while we're during lockdown. So it's not like I'm not turning off, but that's the way I'm wide and I'm not going to try to change that. No, there's no point. You go, girl. That's what I say. <laughs> now, David, I want to direct this question at you because your mother, the very fella Hamilton, publicly credits you and Sharon for expanding the business, which is amazing. So what was the most difficult transition that you had to make as you moved into that leadership phase? The most difficult transition? Uh, uh, we actually discussed this question. And I've forgotten what the answer is, Sharon. Uh, <laughs> we had a discussion. Uh well, no, I said, would it be an age, um, you know, because at the time when you took over, that was, what, 20 years ago when your mother slowed down when she was 75 and you were, what were you then, 40, a lot of your employees were older than you. Mm-hmm. So I said to you, I asked you, is it an age thing that you felt you needed to gain their respect? And you said no. <laughs> you didn't agree with the concept that it was earning your respect because you said that for many years you'd sort of been growing into that leadership role anyway. It wasn't like all of a sudden you weren't doing... Once your father died, you and your mother were sharing a lot of the responsibilities. And my sister. And your sister. Yeah. We were sharing a lot of the responsibilities anyway. So it wasn't like um, she just from one day to the next retired. She retired slowly. You know, she was doing Mm. full-time and she was doing, you know... Part-time. Part-time, then she was going overseas for a few months at a time. So it was it was something that, David, well, what, what is your question? What well, no, I think I think there wasn't really too much that uh, was the, the most difficult. I remember it was more so the fear, the fear and the anxiety possibly of knowing that she will retire and, and I will be doing it without her. Uh, and how would we manage? I think she kept reminding me how tough it is and how difficult <laughs> I'm going to find it. So I was a bit anxious about the whole thing. But that's human nature. We're always anxious of the unknown. And until you really step into 
the unknown, and then you realise it's not as bad as you thought it would be. And that's really what happened. I, I was very, very concerned that we wouldn't be able to cope as well as what we ended up doing. And the same thing happened when my sister retired. I was worried that uh, there'd be gaps that I wouldn't be able to fill, but we've got a fantastic team working for us, and I wouldn't certainly be able to do it with my, without them. And and uh, you know, I always, when I'm not sure of something, I'll ask. Some, I'll ask my team, who are, you know, in many areas, they're more uh, experienced and more knowledgeable than me, and and that's that's the most important thing. That's one of the smartest things you can do is hire people that are smarter than you, and you do have a fantastic team. The ones that I've met are great, you know, right. very onto it, very loyal. You know, they really are. We're very lucky. Yeah, right. yeah, no, they are. They're very, very good. And the only other thing to comment is when your mother was involved, it was a much, I mean, years ago it was a big wholesale business. So she had all the experience in wholesale. But as a retailer, your mother retired when there weren't many stores. So it was really David, through David and that's David's sisters, her husband and myself, we grew the business to the size it is now, which is a sort of a small to medium-sized business with, you know, between 30 to 35 stores depending on, when we're opening and closing, but um, therefore you were the one who really ran with the expansion, not your mother. So it wasn't like you were taking over an exp- expanding business. That's so right. that so that's also something that wouldn't have been too bad for no, you. No, no, you're right. We, we're the ones who grew it, and uh, my mother can't take the credit for that, that's for sure. I think we can take the credit for that. Yeah, and she does. She publicly says that. I mean, in a couple of the articles that I've read, she really was very extremely um, complimentary about the two of you and, and your sister and, and her husband as well. So that's brilliant. Now... Fella Hamilton's got a particular type of customer and I I definitely have fallen in love with her. So she's an older woman. But, David, can you talk us through who she is? Well, she's probably uh, in her... Uh, she's over 50. I often say she's really... Uh, the average age of our customer is probably in her 70s, in fact, uh, but well, that's the average age of the customer who comes into the store, which I think is a bit younger. That's right, because as the uh, online sales have grown, uh, the you know we're reaching out to people all around the country who see a beautiful website, they see a beautiful product, and we're very conscious to design clothes that don't look old because we've been told many times by our shop staff that, you know, just because you are old doesn't mean you want to dress old. So, but what's so, our customer? What do you think she is? Well, she's a, she's a, she's a, a lady who likes good quality. She likes Australian made. She likes something that's comfortable. She likes colour. And we know that their body shape changes once they get to a certain age. So we have a whole design team here, pattern makers and sample machinists and, and design cutters. We make clothes that are suited to people's changing body shape. And we know they want, whether for whatever occasion, whether it be leisure or special occasion, we do it all. And we have a very loyal following. And generally speaking, they're more a mature woman. But that doesn't mean you don't get a younger woman that comes along and and tries something on and loves it and thinks, wow, that's pretty cool. So it's open Uh, to them all. Yeah, so we like to think that the clothing are ageless. So they could, you know, there's a range of customers. And they also want to feel stylish. So they they want to feel good when they're wearing it. 
And generally, we, we would say it's a, from a demographic, it's a medium to high demographic. You know, we're not a high-end designer label. I mean, and we never try to pretend we are, but we certainly... Um, we certainly want to show that we've got stylish clothes, good value, reasonable prices. So um, that's our woman, someone who... And good quality. And generally she's a retiree or a semi-retiree. Um, she might be doing community work. She could be in advertising like me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Or they, they like to travel, they like to play golf. And so you spoke a lot about about the different types of clothing that these these women are are looking for. Do you have any top kind of picks from your range that you find that they're like the the top hits, they're the repeat purchases? We do have certain styles that we then classify them as core items. So we do them every season, whether it be a basic uh, Hadrina T-shirt, which is a wool jersey, beautiful quality T-shirt, or some of our other cotton spandex t-shirts or some of our stretch bengaline pants or check pants uh, there are certain certain things that we sell a lot of or, or ponty pants we sell in winter beautiful quality ponty pant that's made in the fabric's actually made in melbourne as it's really really popular there's certain things that we do all the time and but they are in terms of the different categories that changes the fashion changes for example as we all know leisure wear has been very in vogue lately mm-hmm. so we've been making a lot of leisure wear the funny thing is that's what fella hamilton started oh, with yeah. with leisure wear <laughs> my mother was the queen of tracksuits uh and now it's done a full, full circle i mean we're not uh, obviously uh like those younger labels that uh, uh some of the younger ones wear but uh we're selling a lot of tracksuits because of lockdowns etc so that's been an that's been an exciting trend and we're continuing to expand that area at the moment and uh, it's always changing you wouldn't believe it but blazers are coming back into fashion and they were out of fashion for many years so that's something that we're looking forward to bringing back uh yeah it's always changing love a blazer can't go wrong with a good blazer i say Look, in 2019, Fella Hamilton, of the brand, I should say, turned 50. Uh, but also we had Australia experiencing some of the very worst bushfires and then we were hit with COVID-19. It really just felt like one thing after the other. And now we've had to deal with lockdown closures and reopenings and then closures again and now another reopening. Uh, so how do you just like prepare for that disruption to your business as a retailer? I don't think anyone can prepare because you don't know until it's hit. Um, what what we do though, you have to be flexible, uh, nimble. You have to make change. You have to keep thinking. You have to make changes. You have to then reassess every you know few times a week. Is our stock level, inventory level, going to be too high? Um, so, what we find being a local manufacturer is we've got a little bit more flexibility in what we want to pull back, what we're not going to cut up, what we're not going to make. So that's probably the biggest success to having to deal with these extreme sort of conditions that you could not predict. We also have to be always thinking of, okay, in this situation, what do we do? What do we do with the stores? Okay, the stores are closed, but guess what our customers would still love to hear from our, our retail staff. So we had to think of a way that they connected with them and then they phoned them and they we still made sure we 
developed our catalogues. In fact, we last, when the pandemic first hit, we even put, we did more catalogues because we were worried that our customer couldn't come into store. Mm. So it's it's more so, it's not re- necessarily the preparation, it's the adaption. And thinking on your feet. And thinking on your feet straight away, thinking out of the square. That's, I reckon, where the most, that's where the success is. I guess the only thing you can prepare is just not being financially strapped ever because you have to make allowances for times that can get difficult. So That's a really interesting point that you make. I did a a big piece of research on business community last year and when I asked the question, what was it that, what would you tell yourself in 10 years' time, your, what would you tell someone who was going to face or in the next 100 years going to face a similar sort of situation? And cash was one of the the number one answer that everybody gave was that being prepared and making sure you had the cash flow in order to get through it. Yeah. And the only other thing is just making sure that you continue to have very good relationships with your suppliers, subcontractors, landlords. You know, there's no point having any enemies or you know, just to be on good friendly terms because we had to use our subcontractors uh, hugely to the point where they were, um, when we went through the mask mania, you know, it was because we had a great relationship that they really, uh, what would you say, David, they worked well above what they would have had to do. I mean, they wanted to, I guess they wanted to work as well. But even the fabric suppliers, everyone was sort of really, Help trying to help us as much as we can when we started that healthware range. You touched about being in the middle of a pandemic and creating masks. Now, let's uh, talk about that because you actually built up a completely different port- part of your business, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I had a, an acquaintance who's a surgeon who said to me, I never thought I would be wearing a fella Hamilton isolation gown in ICU. So, <laughs> neither did we. Neither did we. So we... Well, would, the way, just explain the way yeah. it started. You, you've, we've got friends that are doctors and during the pandemic, when it first hit, we can remember how we were all in a panic mode. Uh, they came to us as clothing manufacturers and said, listen, we've, we can't get supply of this PPE. Uh, so that was scrubs or gowns. Yeah. They were too worried to wear their normal clothes because you couldn't wash at the high heats or you'd damage your clothes. And that's why the scrubs and gowns were protective because you could throw them off and and really wash them at 70 or 80 degrees to try to, if there was any virus, you would be killing the virus. And at the time when it really hit, there was nothing around here that had been sold out already and China wasn't supplying because they had their own issues and they were in their, um, they were first in lockdown and then we followed. So um, we, they said, could you just make up for us? So we sort of measured up and we, there was a few doctors and a few you know, all different. There was quite a, a few different dentists and gastro. There was uh, what was oh, there's a whole array of people that we tried and sampled, and they wanted to tweak this way and tweak that way. And in the end, um, it, you know, we get we had so many requests that we just made a range. Well, we didn't actually do it to make money. We did it to help them because we could, and it turned out 
it turned out to be a, a little business, uh, but it was uh, it was done as I say with all good intentions to help them. But then Sharon had the idea uh, about the masks, which we refer to now as mask mania, because it what really was manic. Because what happened was I could see countries overseas, and I like to follow what the patterns were, and I could see the there were some countries that were. Um, really mandating, you know, mask outside, inside, and Australia hadn't even spoken about it yet. And I thought, why don't we make some masks? There will be our older lady may feel more comfortable wearing a mask. And um, so we were ahead of the game. We already had started making masks, albeit that it was so they were some small. Um, we had to improve them. I mean, we only improved them by customer feedback. And in the end, we've got lots of variations with, um, you know, these toggles that can be all different sizes. So the first batch were just elastics and not all faces were the same size. But that's how it all started. And when our Dan Andrews publicly announced that you had to have masks from now on. Like, no, I think he gave us three days grace. There was no one at that stage were making masks. Oh, no, no, there was probably just a couple of people making masks. And to get the disposables, they ran out because of China shortage. And anyone to import masks would have taken, you know, what, weeks. weeks. So within a few days, we had, I think it was 60,000, 70,000 masks um, on order in a very short time. So it, was, it really was mask mania at the time. In the end, I think we've sold over 300,000 masks. Wow. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. That is absolutely crazy when you think about the numbers there. And it's not only helped... Uh, people who needed masks, but it's helped our company because A, gave us some extra cash flow and B, it's given our staff a reason to work uh, in during this, you know, depressing time. They've been helping the community. They've been designing. They've been creating. It's really a level of excitement yeah. that they've loved and they've been able to work because it was an essential service. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, as you recall, was allowed to work. Well, in lockdown one and two, I think lockdown two for three or four months when Melbourne was in lockdown and I know Sydney was fine. I mean, most, I think every state besides Melbourne was fine. They, we were not allowed to manufacture fashion, but our factory was allowed to continue and we had an approval because um, we were making the PPE for hospitals, doctors and masks. So it really helped for those three or four months. So you kept the business going. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. It's a great insight for other other organisations that haven't been able to pivot quite like that, isn't it? Yeah, and it's given us opportunities. So we have got one of the departments, um, government departments, we are now dealing with them. and we have just been contracted to make a small order for, for sort of a bit of a uniform, which is exciting, a really exciting opportunity for us. Um, it's small, but, it, you know, that's the start. Everything has to start from somewhere. Now, natural disasters, I always look at them as well. So, you know, we've come off the back of a, like before COVID and before the pandemic hit, we obviously had uh, drought and bushfires and um, also flooding in, in certain parts of Australia. 
What's the difference between on a retail business or a manufacturing business like yours uh, when it comes to those natural disasters versus pandemic? The quite, I mean, I know one's the lockdown, but what's the differences that go on there? Well, generally, natural disasters generally are, temp- are temporary and they're short term and they're and they're more specific to a location. So it generally doesn't. I mean, the bushfires had a. a bit of an impact because it, it engaged a lot of areas, Victoria, ACT, New South Wales, even Tasmania had bushfires. Mm. So it did affect, but it was only a few months. So you could handle, you know, the businesses equipped to allow that, you know, loss in sales for a short period. With a pandemic and this amount of lockdowns, this is way worse because it's been extended and, um, you know, and our two key cities were in lockdown for three months. I mean, that's massive. Um, We had, at one stage, we had 26 out of 32 or 33 stores closed. So um, that is a much bigger impact than a natural disaster. I guess if we had a natural disaster like a bigger earthquake than we had, and we had disruption to our factory, that would be that would be the, the worst scenario where there was big damage to, well, first of all, hopefully everyone, you know, all people are okay and no one's hurt, but to the running of the business would be um, a problem with the factory. Uh, it gets destroyed or building or it has to be rebuilt. Or even going back to the pandemic, if we had to close down for 14 days, that would also be not a disaster, but certainly not very good that everything had to close for two weeks in our factory. I can absolutely understand what you're talking about there. But our business, when I actually went back and evaluated our business, we had been impacted by the bushfires much more than what I actually realised. And because a lot of our advertisers wouldn't advertise when people were um, experiencing oh, difficulty emotionally, emotionally, yes, yes, and and so they didn't feel like they should do advertise at that time. And when we hit that first April, we fell down to sixteen percent of our turnover of where it should have been. So and then slowly grew up, but grew out of that, you know, over time. But it was, you know, it was just incredible how it actually impacted and and how sudden it was. Where the other, where I found natural disasters are more gradual, if that makes sense. So natural natural disasters are much more gradual in in the impact that they have on our business like ours, as opposed to the pandemic, which is just sudden. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, that's right. Over, I mean, no, no one really, oh, well, I guess natural disaster or a pandemic, you don't expect it. No, you don't. And you didn't expect, like even in war, you know, when you think about it, even during the war you were able to get out and go to work and there'd be bars or, you know, and amongst the rubble and things like that. When you look back in the, there's a lot of the pictures that you see, no one was told that they had to shut down. Not like we've experienced, you know, that's just been incredible, hasn't it? Yeah. Well, moving on to greener pastures, I hope. I want to know a little bit more about your freedom ahead that you've got coming. You know, Victoria is really on the way. New South Wales is on the way towards 80%. How are you planning on, 
either relaunching or kind of opening up again your stores to your customers? Well, to be really honest, we're so used to opening and closing and opening and closing. We've uh, Victoria, I think, has had seven lockdowns. Mm. Um, so, so we're sort of used to communicating with our customer, doing all the things that, you know, changing the phone messages, changing your website, your banner, uh, your EDMs, so they're sort of with it's become all the signage and all the all the uh, uh, sanitising and, and then all <laughs> any updates that you have to do for customers to come in. But from the point of view, Freedom Day, we have to be very careful. We want to do a sip and shop with our customer, but of course we can't sort of publicly say, "Oh, everyone come into the into the store," because we've got density limits. Mm. So we are going to. Um, in our catalogue for Christmas, we're going to just, you know, thank everyone for their wonderful support and and just talk about a sip and shop in January maybe, like a little let's celebrate. Hopefully we can celebrate that numbers are controlled and we're, we're heading the right way. I mean, I, just still being very cautious because we're not over it yet and... Um, I know that in London, in the UK, they had this freedom with not many measures and their results haven't been great. But if you look at Denmark, where they had a more gradual freedom day, freedom, their results seem to be a lot better. I don't think we're going to, as a business, um, we're going to welcome them and we send them an EDM. Um, Glenda, did you get the EDM to New South Wales? I don't know if you would be on that database. Yes, I did. And we sent a text to our customers to welcome them back. I got that too. Okay. <laughs> and I got my catalogue yesterday too. Oh, yes. Yeah, so it all happened at the, the same time. So, yeah, I just don't know how much. It's not like we're in a restaurant and, mm. yeah. I mean, we, we plan a, a bit of a celebration in January once we've sort of, sort of seen how things are. Well, and, and sorry, just in um, markets like regional Victoria versus Melbourne, for instance, or regional New South Wales versus uh, Sydney, have you seen much of a difference between the way the markets have reacted? It's well, it depends where the store is. In Barrel, we've noticed that a lot of Sydney people, when they were allowed to travel to within their state, they would go to Barrel, and that did really well. That's done really well during the pandemic. So that's regional, but it's close enough that people have holiday houses or people wanted to get away from the city. Something like Orange, so that's in New South Wales as well, it's four hours' drive. Mm. It was generally, uh, that's really been hit hard. There's mm. just been, even the Sydney people didn't go up there. It's just, there's not a rule. It, it hasn't been consistent. Mount Eliza, which is on the outskirts of Melbourne in, and it's a lovely beach resort, that did very well during COVID. So it's sort of hard. I would say that if people had holiday houses, they seem to be spending more time on the peninsula, uh, yet the real regional ones um, suffered. We had an interesting discussion with one of the heads of, of regional Southern Cross Osterio and uh, she was Jen was telling us that certain areas are really booming in regional Australia too and and it's been because people are migrating from the cities into the into these particular areas and 
and also people not moving into the city. So they're remaining within these regional clusters. So that was fascinating. We haven't really seen any evidence of uh, our stores in Ballarat or Bendigo oh, yeah, or true. Orange. We haven't seen any evidence of that increased activity because they've been in and out of lockdown too. People are still scared to go out shopping, mm. even in those areas. And even Orange, for example, they've just opened up Orange. No, no, a week ago. A week ago, so that people in Bathurst, for example, are allowed to drive to Orange. But people from Sydney are not allowed to drive to Orange, as far as I understand. No, they're not. So not it's, still, it's still a struggle out there. Our manager tells us that there's hardly anyone around. In Orange. In Orange, yeah. But Barrel, when it opened on Monday, it's had a really good week this so far. So yeah. uh, it, it's hard to... Generalise. General, yeah. yeah. It is crazy, isn't it? It's a crazy world that we are living in right now. Unfortunately, it's that time that we have to close up the show, but I just want to say thank you so much, David and Sharon. This has been from the, the, the knife story at the start. This has been a real roller coaster. So it's been great to have you both on. Thank you very much. I think it's been fascinating too, and I love it. I love that you agreed to come on, and I love your story. I think it's absolutely brilliant, and I love the stores. I, you know, I love the the clothing and everything. So I'm a fan. You've got me forever. Good Fantastic. You, Thank you. Thanks very much. And uh, we thank Glenda very much for all your time and your team's time. You know, it's very dedicated that we uh, meet every week. And, um, yeah, we can. We only think with a new website we'll be more and more successful. I mean, look, we're really happy with our online business. I mean, it's hugely increased. So it's and, the And now that we've got Glenda, yeah. you know, looking yeah. after us, we're even going to do better. Yeah. And we're very appreciative that you really do care and you care not just to make the money but you care about what would be good for our business. And you don't always find that. So we appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for that. That's so yeah. sweet. <laughs> See, I am a good person, G. You don't think I am all the time. No, no, she does she doesn't want to just spend our money. She Kylie thinks, told us that from the beginning. Yeah, no, she thinks about it carefully. You know, will it will it pay off? Yes or no? Or maybe we should hold back, you know. So I appreciate that. That's good. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a shameless plug time. If you want to get in touch with GW, we've got a, a, I'm very, embarrassed. Our very own RT is going to be in our description. But if you want to get in touch with David and Sharon Hamilton, we'll put their contact details in the pending approval bio. Again, thank you guys so much for being on the on the podcast today. It's been a great one. And everyone out there, stay safe. We'll be back in a few weeks. Thanks, guys. You be safe out there. Bye. Bye. <laughs> 